have a seat. Good morning, everybody. My name's my name is Steve. Uh, I am a volunteer here. That is an official title. Uh, Peter's official title is team member. My official title is volunteer. Uh, we're happy to be serving you this morning. Uh, we're happy to see uh, so many people here. We know this is a busy time of year, and a lot of us take this time to uh, rest and vacation. And so uh, I'm excited to see a full house. I can't believe how quickly Christmas passes, right? It's like we have this whole month of busyness and craziness and anticipation, and then all of a sudden it's over. And, uh, you know, I may or may not still have all my Christmas decorations out, including my Christmas tree. Not entirely sure when we're supposed to take it down, um, but I'm sure we will figure it out. Um, Personally, I, I actually genuinely like this week. I've always liked this week between uh, Christmas and a new year, and for us, a new decade, uh, because I like uh, being reflective, and I like looking back and kind of reflecting on the year. I also like looking forward and planning for uh, the new year, and uh, it's kind of the theme I want to uh, broach this morning, Um, although I've never really been a New Year's resolutions type of guy because uh, I like the idea of crafting and coming up with resolutions. Actually doing them is kind of a pain, Um, especially once you get into like February, March. So I've never been that kind of guy. Um, My friend though, true story, one of my best friends a couple years ago was invited to a party uh, called Resolutions Roulette. it's a true story, and I'm sure you can guess kind of what the purpose of this party was. The idea was all these uh, guys and girls who are very close friends, that's, I, that's why I tell myself my friend didn't take me to this party because I wasn't in this so- circle, but uh, that's what I tell myself each night. But he really is my best friend, and he really did go to this party. And uh, the point of this party was to play this game they called Resolutions Roulette, Everybody who came, came with two written New Year's resolutions on uh, slips of paper, and they put uh, one in each of two baskets. So they had two baskets of full of New Year's resolutions. Uh, after, you know, the customary eating and drinking of various things, they decided to play this game, and what you would do is they would take turns and you would draw a resolution from each basket, and that would be your New Year's resolution that you would have to do in the coming year. And the reason this would work is because uh, this group of friends hung out all the time. They hung out pretty much every week. So there was built-in accountability to actually do these things. They actually knew whether or not their friends would do these things. So uh, it really had mostly good intentions. Um, The reason there were two baskets is because one was a serious basket of these are things we know we should be doing and these are good things to do. And then the other basket was the fun basket. And by fun, I mean... Fun for everyone who didn't draw one from, uh, fun for everybody else except the person who draws it. So to give you some examples, uh, here are a couple of the serious ones uh, that my friend said were drawn from the serious basket. One was to save $1,000 in the coming year. Uh, at this time, we were all in our 20s, uh, and you know that's actually kind of a challenge for some of us in our 20s, right? Um, to try to put away about 100 bucks a month and save $1,000 during the year. Uh, Another one was to find a friend with kids and offer to babysit at least once a month so that the friends can go out and either have a date night or do something. The one that made everybody groan is uh, because, you know, I was living in Hawaii. My friend, this party happened in Hawaii, was if you're ever given the choice between white rice and brown rice, 
you have to choose the brown rice. Everybody groaned when that one was drawn because if you've been to Hawaii, you know every, pretty much every meal in Hawaii is served with rice, um, especially when you eat out. So ter- this is a great one for your health, uh, just terrible one for your taste buds uh, for the entire year. Now the fun one was a lot more fun. Uh, one guy pulled one that said he had to post a selfie every day. So every day during the year, he had to post a selfie of him doing something. And this is a guy who didn't even have Instagram yet. Um, He just uh, was a casual social media user. Another one, also pulled by a guy, had to host a Twilight Marathon party. He really did host this party. Two people came, but he really did host the party where they watched through all of the Twilight movies. One poor young woman, (laughs) this one's my favorite. One poor young woman pulled one and said she had to sign off on every email with YOLO. So like... Dear small group, we're going to meet this week. YOLO, Steve, uh, for the entire year. My friend, if you're wondering, my friend got one. He got off easy. He had to change his uh, ringtone to a song called Christmas Shoes, which is okay. I told him, man, if I would have written that one, I would have made you change your ringtone to the classic Baja Men song, Who Let the Dogs Out? (laughs) Especially in 2019 or 2020, you can imagine how popular that ringtone is going to be. Well, this morning, uh, I don't want to talk about resolutions, but I do want to talk about kind of priorities. And I do want to think, you know, I want to kind of encourage all of us when we think about next year and we think about this next decade, I want us to think about what our priorities are and how we make decisions. Decisions with our time, decisions with uh, people we spend time with, decisions with our money, the kind of priorities that determine the life choices we make. And so I want us to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read starting in verse 41, and wow, that is huge. I I still am not used to how big this theater screen is, so this is my slide with my huge font. So uh, I'll start reading in uh, verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added. And right when we get going, I have to stop again because it sounds like we're coming into the story that, you know, mid-story. What is this message? Who are these 3,000 people? What were they added to? So let's do a real quick recap with photos. Um, Let's do a real quick recap of where we are in Acts. These are real images from the children's Bible. I read to my daughter every night. So, uh, you know, it's easier when there's images. Uh, The beginning of Acts... Jesus is spending time with his disciples. He's been resurrected. He spends 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he tells them, go wait in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends into heaven. If you were with us in uh, way, way back, forever ago in June, uh, Pastor Al preached on this. And if you remember, he rightly pointed out that the point is not that Jesus just got elevated into the sky, but that he ascended to his throne that Jesus claimed his throne and is now ruling over uh, heaven and earth. And so the disciples go, and they go and wait in Jerusalem for about nine or ten days. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus promised. No, these guys are not on fire looking for a fire extinguisher that uh, has not yet been invented, but they are receiving the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us it comes down in the form of fire on these people. And you might be wondering why fire... If we do a flashback a few, maybe a thousand years ago, when, when uh, Solomon dedicates the temple, in Israel, the temple was supposed to be where God would come and dwell with his people. 
He dedicates the temple, he prays for it, and God sends fire from heaven to engulf the sacrifice. And so what Luke is pointing out, by pointing out that the Holy Spirit came down by fire, is that God is dwelling with his people. He is, he is <clears throat> uh, inhabiting each one of us. Uh, the Holy Spirit inhabits each one of us. But more importantly, the community of God's people are his new temple. And this is imagery that uh, kind of continues on through the rest of the New Testament, that God dwells with his people in the community of Christian believers. So back to Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and in front of thousands of people in public, he preaches this really long sermon about Jesus. Uh, You can read it for yourselves, saying all of the stuff about what happened to Jesus and the significance of it. And so people ask him, what are we supposed to do with this? And this is what he says. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That line is really important for how we understand our passage. But before we go there, I must digress once again because it's hard to read this and not let you know this invitation is still open. uh, Peter spoke those words. Oh, I'm sorry, can we go back one slide? Peter spoke these words 2,000 years ago, but this is an open invitation. If you've been coming to our church and you want to put your faith in Jesus, receive the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, please come talk to me or Pastor Julin or Peter or anyone wearing a lanyard afterwards. We don't want to just assume that everybody knows this. Um, This invitation is wide open. And so if you want to receive Jesus Christ, if you want to put your faith in him and receive the Holy Spirit, uh, please come talk to us afterwards. But we'll continue on. This is where our story picks up. So in this context, about 3,000 people responded to Peter's message. They chose to be baptized, and as Peter promised, they received the Holy Spirit. So I'm not sure about you, but have you ever asked yourself what would it look like for 3,000 people filled with the Holy Spirit in a community to look like? This theater probably holds, I'm guessing, just over 300 people, um, and there are open seats, and that's great, we're happy for that. So we're talking about probably 10 times the people who could fit in this room, all filled with the Holy Spirit for the very first time, all coming together to form a community for the very first time. And uh, you know, it just begs the question, what does this community look like? Now, I come from a, you know, generally, this will, you know, what you might think about uh, what this kind of community would look like will depend on your experience uh, with people who talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Julian and I both, in earlier parts of our lives, attended Pentecostal churches. So I don't say this with any disrespect, but, you know, I might think, as someone in that, that a community of 3,000 people filled with the Holy Spirit would be a spontaneous community. It would be a community that just speaks all sorts of languages, some that are intelligible, some are not, that where people are just bursting out into singing, when people are just healing each other, where people are uh, praying for each other, where people are receiving words of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy and all of this kind of spontaneous action. That's what I might think of. Uh, you might think of something else. But let's read what this community looks like, picking up in, in verse 42. This is what a community of 3,000 people filled with the Holy Spirit looked like. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. 
All who believed were together and held everything in common. They began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. This is what a Holy Spirit-filled community looks like. They loved God fervently, and they loved each other deeply and sacrificially, and you can't pull those two apart. In fact, look at just uh, look at verse 46. Every day they gathered to temple to get they gathered together in the temple courts. So they were worshiping God, and then they were breaking bread from house to house, which could be just eating a meal together, but it could also be celebrating communion together. So you have a mix of worshiping God, but spending time with each other, sharing food with each other. That's loving each other with glad and humble hearts, which is a response to God in the scriptures, praising God for, and having the goodwill of all people. And you see the result. The result is more people kept coming to faith because of the way this community lived. So we have a situation where people love God and love neighbor, but these are not two separate things. They're intertwined. And the result is an effective mission. Presumably, the, uh, the apostles kept preaching and people kept coming to faith. But when they integrated into the community, this is the community they experienced. Now, this is a very popular passage. Uh, I've, this passage has come up. I've been involved um, my uh, previous church years ago in uh, Hawaii. Every year, we take time to reflect on why do we do the things that we do. And uh, like many churches, we come back to this passage, and for good reason. Uh, you might be wondering what this is. What this is, is a summary statement. Uh, so we're in the book of Acts, and Dr. Luke wrote this book of Acts to, as a sequel to his gospel, kind of illustrating how the church was formed and how the gospel essentially spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. So the way Dr. Luke writes this, and when you think Dr. Luke, he just happened to be a medical doctor, always think to yourself, Dr. Luke, PhD in history, because he wrote a really fine Greco-Roman style history. He, uh, he writes kind of a series of episodes of what these apostles are doing. And if he only had these episodes, you might read Acts and think, oh, this is the adventures of 12 or 15 people. But in reality... Luke really wants to stress, no, they we're talking about thousands of people in this early church. And he does this by putting these summary statements in transition between kind of scenes. So we have this first scene, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. We have the next scene of the, when the gospel starts to move outside of Jerusalem. And this is a summary statement he kind of sticks in between. But it's really important. It's not just a transition. From studying Acts, we know Luke does this for two reasons. One is he wants us to see what this church looked like. He wants to show the inner workings of the church while the apostles are doing everything they're doing. The other thing that we do know he wants is he wants this to be the ideal. Luke is writing for a second generation of Christians who are still meeting in churches, and he writes this as an example for them. When he does these summary statements, these summary statements are examples of what your community should be looking like. And that's true for Luke's original audience, and it's been true for every church since then, and it's true for Tap Marpole today. 
This is what Luke wants us to know a spirit-filled community looks like. That said, Luke's not naive. He's not kind of looking back and thinking, oh, these were the good old days where nothing went wrong. We're in chapter two here. Things that start to break down pretty quickly. You know, we had this, uh, you know, they were selling their property, giving uh, the proceeds to those who had need. In just two chapters, we have a husband and wife who decide to sell a piece of property and lie about how much money they're giving to the church. Uh, not, which isn't a problem because this was not required. It was totally voluntary. The problem was they wanted the status of being these big, generous people, but they didn't actually want to do it. And then a chapter after that, we see a breakdown of the distribution of food. Uh, even right away, they're distributing food every day to those who have need, but you have a mix of cultures. You have Greek-speaking uh, Jewish Christians, and you have Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians, and all of a sudden, the Greek-speaking Hebrew Christians start getting overlooked, and all the food is going to the Hebrew-speaking Christians. Luke doesn't hide this. Luke isn't saying, look, this was perfect, it, there were no problems, but what he is saying is this is what we should be striving for. This is what we should be trying to uh, live, or live out as a church there's a, uh, there's a scholar named John Polhill who I think puts this really aptly. He says, Luke's summaries present an ideal for the Christian community which it must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if it is to have the unity of spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. I think that's very true. And it's even true for us. Let me read that one more time, just changing it a little bit. Luke's summaries present an ideal for the tapestry marpole, which it must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if we are to have the unity of spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. So in that light, I uh, don't have a lot of time this morning to break it down, but I do want to focus on one critical aspect of this passage um, that I think is really relevant to our cultural moment. Um, I've been chewing on this all year because another pastor first pointed this out and it just struck me to the core. I think what our cultural moment needs to discover anew is that the spirit-filled community was devoted. They were devoted to these things. In fact, you see right off the bat, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Awe came over everyone. There were miraculous signs and wonders but the focus is on what they're devoting themselves to. The, the uh, grammar of this translation might strike you as a little awkward. I chose that on purpose. If you were to open up your Bible, it might just say they were devoted or they devoted themselves. Um, but I really want to stress that this is an action verb. This isn't a state of being. This isn't a declared priority. This isn't an adjective. It's an action verb. And it's an activity that they were doing. They were devoting themselves. Now, I might sound kind of odd, depending on what thought enters your mind when you think of the verb to devote. And this is the challenge. I, I can 100% assure you, the, the English Bible you're reading is a good translation, assuming it's not the Jehovah's Witness version. Um, other than that, it is a good translation. <laughs> But what's a challenge for us sometimes when you read anything in translation, and you probably know this, if, if you speak more than one language, you know this, any translation, uh, there's always this uh, challenge of sometimes words in a different language take on a different meaning, um, and you just have to be able to live with that. And 
for me, what my challenge is, what I think of when I think of the verb to devote. Uh, I looked it up in uh, my go-to dictionary. I'm an American. We do the Merriam-Webster dictionary because that's kind of the, it's existed since the revolution. And uh, this, is, this is how it defines it, which is not at all what's going on in Acts. It defines to devote as to commit by a solemn act. It's kind of focused on the solemnness, the seriousness. I am seriously declaring this is my priority. That's not what's going on in Acts. Um, it gets a little closer with number two to give over time or uh, direct time, money, or effort to a cause, enterprise, and activity. It's a little closer. But if this is what comes into your mind when you think of devoted, you might miss what's going on in this passage, and that's me. So I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, a good British one. They should know English, right? Uh, and I hit a paywall. So I went to the Cambridge English Dictionary, which is free. And uh, they are... They are much better at this. They, this is very close to what's going on in Acts. To give your time or effort completely to something that you believe in, or to a person, or to use a particular amount of time or energy to do something. It's closer, but again, the focus is like on what you're doing, like what you're giving up to do something. It's like, oh, I'm going to take my time and energy and do this. The focus of the Greek word behind this isn't a special word. The focus is just it's something you just keep doing over and over and over again. Uh, I have it on the next slide. It's just simply to persist in doing something. It's something you just do over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It's not to declare, oh, I'm going to declare this is my highest priority and I'm going to carve out time to do this. It's just skipping that step entirely, and it's just what you just do. Uh, I'm not sure if you know anyone like this. I know a couple people who run so much that they just naturally pack their running shoes when they go on vacation because they run every day, and even if they go on vacation to like Las Vegas or Mexico or anywhere, they'll pack their running shoes and they'll just find time to run because they can't imagine life without running. This is the idea. It's just something you continue doing. You persist in doing it. It's not a special word, and it only really occurs in Acts. Um, and uh, you see this in Acts chapter 6, uh, when, you know, the thing I told you about a moment ago, when there's this problem of Greek-speaking Christians aren't receiving any food, and the Hebrew-speaking Christians are receiving all the food. They bring this to the apostles. The apostles say, oh, let's find, you know, skilled administrators to deal with this because we want to keep preaching and praying. It's not that, oh, this doesn't concern us because all I know is preaching and praying. It's not, I just want to devote my time to preaching and praying. It's, hey, this is what I'm doing today. I'm preaching and praying. And so let's find other people to deal with this problem um, and fix it, which they did. So let's go back to our passage and uh, look at um, this uh, verb actually appears twice in our passage. It's translated two different ways, and both of them are very good ways of doing it. Uh, should be the next slide. I'm so sorry. I, I changed things at the last minute, so uh, the poor volunteers are keeping up as best they can. Uh, you see these yellow highlights? This is the same verb. Just, it's like it's underscoring. This is how they just kept persisting. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
And then skip down, it says, every day they persisted in gathering in the temple to worship God and breaking bread and doing these things. These are just things they kept doing over and over and over and over again. And this was the mark of their community. Now, when you think, this might not strike you as amazing until you think about the difference uh, with our culture. I don't have time to really exposit our culture this morning, but what they're devoting themselves to is all sorts of stuff that doesn't always benefit them. It does, there's a lot of benefit, but the idea is they're giving themselves to other people and they're giving themselves to God. Our culture, whether or not you realize this, has kind of trained us to run everything through the filter of what does this benefit me? Uh, We make choices based on our happiness, based on how fulfilled we feel, and we are very quick to change things if we don't like it. Uh, We'll change schools, we'll change restaurants, we'll change marriages, we'll change all sorts of things if it's not meeting my needs. Of course, this never happens in Vancouver, right? But when we were in Texas, uh, there was a serious problem because going to church was a very cultural thing. And what was very common was people would go to church until something got uncomfortable, until their small group challenged them to do something they didn't want to do, or their pastor challenged them to do something they didn't want to do, or the church made a decision they didn't like, or it could have been something as petty as they weren't invited to a holiday party or something like that. And so what some people in Texas would do is they'd say, oh, there's literally a church right next door. I'm just going to go to this other church instead. We start filtering even church decisions through this lens of I'm the consumer and what am I getting out of this? That never happens in Vancouver, of course, um, but only in places as godless as Texas. Uh, We still have friends in Texas. I say that endearingly. Um, But that's, that's... kind of the challenge that this passage presents to us is the spirit-filled community is one that gives itself to other people and gives itself to God. We benefit a lot from church, especially if you're on the receiving end. If you have a need and somebody's giving you money, you, you, you benefit. Um, but that's not the point. The point is to be part of this mutually giving community and to, to love God and love each other uh, within it. You know, this is actually what I've been chewing on all year because uh, a a pastor named Francis Chan commenting on this passage uh, pointed out, and I think rightly, a lot of us, you know, it's interesting, verses 42 and 43 kind of juxtaposed. They were devoted to all of these things and then on wonder happened because the apostles were performing these miraculous signs. And I think Francis Chan rightly points out, a lot of us want the biblical awe and wonder and miraculous signs and way-making and miracles, but we're not willing to be devoted. We're not willing to give our time to a community. We're not willing to invest our lives living life with other people. Now, I really do want this to be an encouragement because a lot of us in this church do this. I don't want, to say, I don't want, this, I don't want you to hear, oh my gosh, like... Uh, We're saying, no, no one here is committed. That's not true at all. We really do want this to be an encouragement. But I think at kind of a a really, really high level for kind of our cultural moment, I think Francis is absolutely right. And uh, I felt really convicted when I read this. I read this last January. I've been chewing on it all year. What does it mean for me to be devoted in the way that this early church was devoted? So that's where I want to just quickly spend the last few minutes we have, and I want to look real quickly at what it is they were devoted to. Now we see four things right off the bat. 
They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and to be devoted to someone's teaching isn't just a learning exercise. In the ancient world, education was about kind of moral improvement and changing the way you live. So by implication, saying they were devoted to the apostles' teaching meant they were devoted to learning and doing it, not just learning more about the scriptures. And this is, you know, the reason the apostles is because they got it from Jesus. It's not just that the apostles had anything special as much as the apostles were the leaders Jesus appointed of the church. And then uh, the fellowship, we'll come back to in a second. Breaking of bread together confounds some people because it could just mean eating meals together. It could also mean that they were taking communion together. It probably means both because we know the early church did these things together. They didn't take communion without sharing a meal with each other. And they were committed to praying each with each other. So I, I'm a huge fan of prayer. I pray a lot. But these guys were committed to praying with other people, which is a totally different dynamic. Now, it actually continues on. It says other things they were doing. I think a better way to read this passage, and I don't have the time to really dive into even more grammar and bore you with that stuff. Uh, I'm with a group that says, actually, the better way to read this is they're really, they're committed to all these things, but a lot of them fall under this category called the fellowship. Now, the fellowship's an interesting phrase. Luke only uses it here in Acts, and it's probably because they had no idea what to call this community. In our culture, we use the word community for anything. Anytime somebody has a special interest in common with somebody else, we'll call that the, you know, I love mochas on Thursday community. Um, we'll use community to do pretty much anything. They didn't have a word for this gathering of 3,000 people, so they use this word, the fellowship. It eventually becomes called the assembly, which eventually comes into German and then English as church. But the idea of a fellowship is this is a relationship of people who are sharing something together. We have vested interests together. This word could be used of business partnerships where people put stuff in together and profited together. Uh, but when it's used socially, the idea is there's this social gathering where people are invested in each other. And you see that. What happened in this fellowship? They broke bread with each other. They prayed together. They sacrificially shared with each other and they worshiped with each other every day in the temple, which is crazy to think about. This is what they were committed to. They were committed to being a fellowship that spent time worshiping together, spent time praying together, just spent time eating together, and spent time meeting each other's needs as they arose. And you know, I actually changed the grammar on this because, you know, like we said, this is a, this is a uh, not just the first Christian spirit-filled community, but this is the standard for all of us, even today. The, the uh, spirit-filled community is still devoted. And hopefully you recognize some of these things we still do at the Tapestry Marpole. Uh, the form might look a little different, but a lot of these things we do. Uh, the one that always kind of is the bane of Western churches is the sacrificial sharing with each other as anyone has needs. I'm not making this up. My uh, children's Bible illustrated all of these except that one. Uh, for some reason, that one wasn't in the pages. And I think that says something about the Bible was printed in the United States of America. Um, but that's uh, besides the point. The point is, though, that these are things we still strive for. And the thought I really want to leave you this morning, especially as we think about 2020, and especially as we think about a new decade, is 
Are there any of these areas where you might feel like the Holy Spirit is kind of prompting you to say, I could be more devoted in that area? Because just to be honest, friends, this is what matters in life. Not just church attendance, but what God is doing <clears throat> is what matters in life. And the model we get in Acts is that the, when we live the community life this way, God brings people of faith into the community. So for some of us, it might be, you know what, um, worshiping together, uh, I could come a little more frequently than I do. Um, and this is no judgment at all. I totally get there are, we, a lot of us, especially if you work on Sundays, have other commitments. Um, but you know what struck me? Uh, when I was reading this week, the, uh, this organization called the Pew Research Center does uh, all the surveys and statistics and stuff like that. One of the things they care about is what do church attenders think about things? Whether it's what do church attenders think about climate change? Or what do church attenders think about the president? Or what do church attenders think about this or that or this? They've been doing this for years. Just a couple decades ago, in the 80s and 90s, their definition of somebody who regularly attends church, just to know who to count in these categories, was somebody who attends three times a month. What it currently is, somebody who attends church once a month. And it's not because they're changing anything, it's they're just recognizing there are fewer and fewer people who are attending church uh, three times a month or more. Now, it's not, you know, we get there are times to be away, there are other commitments, there's, this really is meant to be encouragement. But I would just encourage you, maybe an easy, low-hanging fruit is to say, I want to worship together with the community more next year than I have been. Or maybe it might be, I want to actually step into the community and actually meet people here. You know, maybe, and I've, I've been this in different stages of my life, sometimes I go to church and I come right when the service starts and I bolt out right when the service ends and uh, I enjoy it uh, and it's scary. I'm an introvert, um, but maybe my next step is to sign up for a small group and actually meet people here, actually break bread together with other people. Uh, you can talk to Julin afterwards if you have interest in that. To be honest, Julin and I were new here just a year and a half ago, and that's what we did. Uh, I was very quick and eager as an introvert to just go home and do my homework. Uh, Julin was like, no, we need to join a small group. We actually need to invest in people here. And I was like, oh, absolutely. And uh, that's how we got integrated into this church. For some of us, a lot of us are doing a lot of these things already. Uh, maybe for us, it might be, you know what, I, I'm in a small group. Uh, but our small group, we spend all the time doing the questions and studying the scripture, which is great, but when was the last time we actually just spent a whole night praying together? Um, maybe that's something we might want to try to do next year. So that would be my encouragement, is just to start thinking about these things. There's no prescription. There's no, hey, this is what you must do. But what I want to do is present, this is what Luke presents as kind of our challenge of, this is what a spirit-filled community does. And I think it's something we all need to strive for. Let me close with one story, and I'll invite the band to come back up. Um, I want to tell you a story about my grandpa, which illustrates this, um, and why I like talking about priorities and not necessarily resolutions. My grandfather was a, uh, his name's Arthur, his, he was a doctor in Calgary. Um, they uh, were missionaries until my dad was in high school, and then they came back and he set up a medical practice in Calgary. Uh, kind of got a late start in life because they were missionaries before. So they lived on the outskirts of Calgary, which is developed now. It wasn't then. And so my dad grew up doing all sorts of like outdoor stuff. And my dad has five siblings. They're all in the same camp. They rode horses. They went canoeing. They went hiking. You know, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains are right there. 
all sorts of stuff. When my dad was in college, my uh, grandpa told them at the dinner table, you know, we have the opportunity to buy a cabin in Lake Shushwap. Um, and, you know, we're going to think and pray about this. My dad and his siblings, all super excited. Like, who doesn't want a vacation cabin where we can go spend time on a lake, hiking, doing all sorts of this crazy fun outdoor stuff that uh, my wife loves and I have mixed feelings about? Uh, a week goes by at the next family dinner. My grandpa tells them this. Keep in mind, my grandpa doesn't work for a church, but this is what he tells them. He says, you know what? I know this is going to be really disappointing. I prayed about it, and I feel very strongly that we're not going to buy this cabin. And everybody was bummed out. And they're like, why? Like, they thought maybe it's a financial thing, maybe it's whatever. This is what he said. He said, if we buy this cabin, every long weekend, we're going to be pulled away from the people of God at Bethany Chapel, which was their church. Every long weekend, we're going to think, let's go use the cabin. In fact, it might not even be a long weekend. If we had a stressful week, we might be thinking, you know, let's just get away and spend the weekend in the cabin. And he said he, to his kids, he said, I can tell you honestly, the most important time we spend every week is with God's people worshiping together. And I don't want to buy something that's going to tempt us to not do that. Now that sets the tone for a family. And that set the tone for my dad. And that set the tone for me and Julin as well. And so that's what I want to challenge you is to think about this. When you read what Luke presents as the spirit-filled community, when you read about how devoted they were to each other and to God, let that be the priority that drives our decisions next year. Thank you.